0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only
2: at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince by J.K. Rowling Chapter 1. The Other Minister It was nearing midnight, and the Prime Minister was sitting alone in his office, reading a long memo that was slipping through his brain without leaving the slightest trace of meaning behind. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
1: And I'm Casper Terkyle.
2: And this is Season 6 of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, Casper, before we start today's episode, I have a trivia question for you.
1: Oh, I like trivia.
2: Do you know what the coolest thing about the city of Los Angeles, California is?
1: Um, you need a car.
2: <laughs> no, it's that your co-host, Vanessa Zoltan, is from there.
1: And our executive producer, Ariana Nettleman.
2: It's a great city.
1: Do you know what else is in L.A.? Our amazing Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Group of Los Angeles. Abby and Joel lead this fearless group of readers, and they get together regularly and would love you to join them if you're in the L.A. area. So go to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups, or you can find them on Facebook by searching for Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Los Angeles chapter. And every episode this season, we'll be shouting out one of our local groups because there are so many of them, and they're all over the world, and we hope you'll join one.
2: And we will only know this podcast is a success when we get invited to a wedding that is the product of a live Harry Potter sacred text event of some kind. I love an electric slide. Somebody fall in love and make it happen.
1: (laughs) We'll come. If there's a wedding, we'll come. And not just weddings, we believe in commitment ceremonies of all kinds, especially if they're in Hawaii.
2: Yes, I believe in things that come with massages.
1: (laughs) So, Vanessa, we're reading chapter one of this book through the theme of helplessness. And you know me, I'm a planner there's nothing I love more than scheduling things like 18 months in advance. I just love knowing what's going to happen. I love knowing who's responsible, what I'm doing. It's a way that has helped me be successful in life. Like I know how to thrive in this way. And when I met Sean, uh, my husband now, I famously told him that his way of arranging his calendar with like a notebook and a pen was no longer acceptable because I needed oversight. And so I made him have a, a gmail account and a google calendar system so that I could coordinate. And Sean is incredibly generous and giving and was willing to to step into this new reality.
2: And would have to be in order I, to be with you. I mean pretty much.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, we do plan a lot together. We have a monthly like life admin planning day where we talk through all the, you know, logistics of of coupled life. And so planning works. Planning works for me. Planning works pretty well for us as a couple. But a few years ago, Sean was in the midst of a really big career change and it it was hard. It was really tough and it was winter in Boston and it was dark. And a few days before Christmas, he fell into this deep depression and Sean's been very open about this. So he's comfortable with me talking about it. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, maybe this is just a, a rough few days, you know, but by day three and four, he was in bed and just not, not himself in the way that I knew him. And I realized that this was something more serious. And I, you know, started to immediately like Google, like, what do you do? Uh, You know? And so I took on the kind of wisdom that I'd grown up with, with when you're not feeling yourself, go for a little walk. So I was like, Sean, let's go for a walk. And none of these little kind of tips and tricks and pep talks were working. And I was really feeling helpless. I I I just remember feeling so lost and that I couldn't solve it. And I couldn't plan my way out of it. And of course, things were 10 times worse for Sean. But for me, I felt, like I couldn't I couldn't fix it. And I was, you know, talking about this with you and with other friends and, and I remember being in floods of tears on the phone with my mother one evening. But I, I found another friend who I talked it through with whose partner was in a very similar situation. And it was so helpful for me to have a friend who knew exactly the feelings that I was feeling, like sometimes frustrated and angry and sometimes deeply sympathetic and sometimes just wanting to escape all of this kind of heady mix of of feelings and all of them reactions to that core experience of helplessness. And so she invited me one day to come and take a walk with her. And I remember just walking around this big lake and we walked around it like three times as we just talked it all out. And I realized that This was not something that I could fix. It wasn't something that I could plan. And frankly, it was something I would just have to feel. I would have to feel helpless. And I just had to stay with him and tell him I loved him and be present as much as I could and an encouraging, loving husband. Um, which does not always come easily. <laughs> so I've I've really struggled with this feeling of helplessness because it's, I think, one of my least favorite feelings <laughs> personally. And it sucks. So I don't want to say that I've come to some sort of peace with it or like there's light on the other side or anything like that. But I think I have learned that sometimes if I'm feeling helpless, I need to remember that it's not something for me to try and solve, but to try and withstand. So as we th- read through that theme today, I, I want to think about that switch when we encounter helplessness
2: yeah i feel a tremendous amount of sympathy for jerry maguire when he feels helpless he like famously says help me help you mm. like that's such an unfair burden to put on the person right. who needs the help but that right like that is how i feel i'm like i need to feel effective in this moment and just being able to sit with being like i cannot be an effective helper it is half a stone's throw from despair for me.
1: Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It really is. And and I think one of the things I'm so grateful for and it's one of the things that really deepened our friendship as well is to to not be alone. And I think it would have been despair had it not been for other people who could say like, me too. I get it. You know, I'm with you. This is what happened when I was there or this is what's happening for me right in the middle of it. And this particular friend had just some really great tips. Like every time I would come home, I would have this huge anxiety of just the, the like whole of sadness, frankly, that I was going to walk into and that I felt like my job was to try and balance that out by being happy. And of course, that feels hollow after a while. And so she just said, you know, every time that you come home, as you put your hand on the door handle, just Take a second and breathe in and breathe out and try and let go of the expectations of what you want to find when you walk inside and just be open to what the reality is. Not that I was able to do that every time, but every time I walked in, I did hold that door handle. And the moment when I no longer noticed that I needed to put my hand on the door handle for a second was the moment when I realized things were getting better. And I'm so grateful, you know, Sean is thriving and doing well. And depression isn't something that, you know, goes away forever necessarily. But I feel like both of us are maybe more resourced in how we might encounter it together if it does come back for him or for me or, or other people that we love.
2: He's lucky to have you as a husband.
1: Well, I'm really lucky to have him. So we make a good team.
2: I don't mean to add salt to an open wound, but are you ready to feel helpless again?
1: (laughs) Bring it on. Because
2: I'm about to beat you in the 30 second recap. Okay,
1: 30 seconds on the clock. The first chapter of The Half-Blood Prince. Here's your recap starting now.
2: All of these terrible things have been happening in England. It's just like misty in the middle of summer. There's been like a hurricane. Bridges have collapsed that are brand new. And the prime minister is like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then the other prime minister shows up. And then we find out that Fudge is actually the former other minister. And then Scrimjock comes and they have this big meeting and where they're like, hi, Voldemort has returned. I'm sorry to tell you this. And also Kingsley Shacklebolt, the best employee you've ever had, actually works for us. And they have this big debrief. And then the two other ministers go back into the fire.
1: That was perfectly timed and full of plot details.
2: (laughs) Um, Why, thank you, sir. It is now your turn. On your mark, get set go.
1: So the Prime Minister is chilling, and he's reading a memo, and it's pretty boring, and he's waiting for a phone call for some foreign dignitary Prime Minister. Um, and then the painting starts moving, and he's like, no, please, painting don't move. You are a signal of bad things. Um, and then um, uh, Fudge arrives, and we hear a lot of the backstory about like how when he was told about the Under Minister and the Wizarding World, like he actually handled it pretty well. And um, then Scrimjaw comes, and he's a new character, Rufus, and he's scary and grim. And um, he explains things, and he's like, I don't have time to explain. Fudge, my new assistant, will We'll do it all for you and goodbye.
2: Something that neither of us mentioned is that people have been murdered.
1: Emmeline Vance.
2: Amelia Bones. R.I.P. Yeah.
1: I feel like we didn't get any padding for those moments. It's just like boom, boom.
2: Well, let's jump in. Okay. Because I think that speaking of helplessness, I think that we'll start with the British Prime Minister. But I think that that is how he feels. Like he is like... We invest in infrastructure. This is a new
1: bridge. Right. There's a, there's just a lot of stuff that's unexplainable. He talks about this grim mood that has gripped the nation and, you know, how his political opponent is making meat of that. But none of these is explainable by logic. There is something else happening and the prime minister doesn't understand.
2: And then I think, you know, just bringing up Amelia Bones, her murder is something that the London police feel completely helpless about, Right. There is no sign of struggle. The door was locked from the inside. I would imagine that there's a tremendous feeling of helplessness both on the police's part and then on the prime minister's part because this happened right in his area. And then the increased feeling of helplessness for him that I just feel so bad for is that he gets answers to the question, right? And it's similar to depression. It's like, oh, this there's a chemical and situational reason as to why this is happening. But Just because you know why it's happened doesn't make the feeling of helplessness go
1: away. Well, and he can't talk about it. I mean, that's one of the big things with mental health, of course, is that we still have such a strong stigma. And the the prime minister is like, even if I told people, like, I would be sent out of office straight away. right? I mean, Fudge literally says that. Like, are you going to tell anyone? Like, come on. So he's caught in the middle. Like, he now knows the truth, but he can't do anything about
2: it. Yeah. What is he supposed to do? Go out and be like... Actually, none of it's my fault.
1: There's a wizarding world, and there's an evil genius who has escaped from a prison called Azkaban. Oh, you're sending me to that place now? (laughs) Yeah
2: and by the way they let dragons in a few years ago
1: <laughs> also I love that we get that backstory where like the first time Fudge shows up he's like you'll probably never see me again everything's fine we have joke shops everything is great and then the next time he's like um slime problem murderer Sirius Black is on the loose don't worry about it all will be well oh sorry I'm back again uh, breakout from Azkaban turns out Sirius is fine uh, but now dead um, watch out for Voldemort <laughs> it's just like one thing after another and i I love that by the end of this chapter that you see the prime minister is starting to put two and two together. Like his agency actually returns kind of as we think about this theme of helplessness. He starts to ask questions and starts to say, well, hang on. weren't these dementors, the ones who guard Azkaban and Fudge is like, funny story. (laughs) (laughs) They're having, you know, rabbit scale replication situations across your country. That's why everyone's feeling grim.
2: Yeah, I like that question asking as a form of trying to deal with helplessness, right? Mm. I think that when we're helpless, one of the things that we try to do is accrue information as a form of accruing power. And so it's if you're dealing with a loved one's cancer diagnosis, one of the things that a lot of oncologists will tell you is not to do research on the internet because that is can be so vague and so broad and so depressing and, you know, every situation is so specific. But of course, if you feel helpless, the one thing that you feel like you can do is accrue information and you just get more and more information and still can't do anything, even though the prime minister is going to realize that even with all of the information and understanding that the Dementors no longer are guarding Azkaban, et cetera, he's not going to be able to do anything. I just have such sympathy and empathy for being like, I'm going to get all the information I can.
1: Well, and then sometimes when you get information, right, like he learns that Kingsley Shacklebolt is a wizard who's been in his kind of security detail or policy team or something. And he literally says, oh, he's twice as good as everyone else. Surprise, surprise. He uses magic. But when he learns new information that unsettles his existing worldview, he actually becomes very hesitant about keeping him on the team. And so sometimes that kind of new information can only make us feel more helpless because we're like, oh, I thought this thing was stable. And actually now I'm learning all sorts of news about it, which is making me feel even less in control. Because I, I do think a lot about this, at least for me, had to do with control. Right? Oh, of course. Like that I, there wasn't something I could do. There wasn't a phone call I could make or, or a goal I could hit, which would change it. I just had to endure it. And, and the prime minister is in the same place. Like he can't do anything about the wizarding world. Anything he would try, he'd immediately be dead. So he just has to endure it.
2: There's that just heartbreaking moment where he's almost a child at the end of the chapter and Mm -hmm. is like, I don't understand. Can't you use magic? Yeah. And then Scrimjaw says, like, don't you understand? The other side also has magic. Yeah. And I just feel like that's the way that we sort of look at our parents when we're little and feel Mm -hmm. helpless. And it's like, but can't you just fix it. Mm. And it's like, no, like this problem is an adult sized problem. And so we can't just fix it.
1: It is interesting, though, to think about this question of information. Like I was stuck in an airport last week. My flight had been canceled the day before. I'd made it halfway through the next leg of the journey. And then my flight was canceled again. And now I was stuck in a strange city. And in that moment, I did go kind of down the rabbit hole of like, okay, so what flight is coming into Detroit? And so where is that one? Hmm, it's in Iowa. There's a time difference. Blah, 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 blah. And strange as it sounds, I really enjoyed looking at that flight as it was coming in because it just gave me a sense, I guess, of predictability. And of course, who knows if the Maybe the flight could have been rerouted. But there is something about finding something that you can hold on to. In that case, it was more information. And so I, I'm wondering, like, if I was the prime minister, would I now ask Fudge, who is, has who is been appointed the liaison here, to be like, I want a daily briefing on the history of wizarding war and who is Voldemort and how can I protect my citizens? And can we put garlic in our windows? You know, I, obviously, there's probably not much they're going to be able to do. But I, want, I would want to know more.
2: And I think that there are actual tactical things that he could learn, right? He could learn to not spend time with the Army Corps of Engineers or whatever the British equivalent is, thinking about their bridges infrastructure. But actually, what they should be doing is spending more time on putting antidepressants in the water because the... Dementors are flying around. Right. So I actually do think that getting more information could be really useful. And he gets just like the wrong amount of information. It's hard. Right. As you were telling your story about how more information was making you feel better. Yeah. I was just reminded of once I was on a a long bus journey and I get car sick. And I was feeling so carsick, and I knew we were close. So I pulled up a map to the final destination to watch on my phone to see, like, okay, there's only 17 more minutes. I cannot barf for 17 minutes. But constantly looking at my phone to see how far we were made me more car sick. And I had to have the New Jersey Transit bus pull over for me to run off the bus and throw up. And I genuinely think if I hadn't been looking at my phone, huh. but instead had been, like, concentrating on my breathing and, like, doing the things that I know work, that I I would have been <laughs> able to make it on that trip. So I feel like sometimes the information is poisonous, right? Mm. Like, sometimes it's important to not go down the Google rabbit hole And just to finish my bus metaphor, right, I thought that I just want more information and the more information actually made me sicker when really I had enough information, which is what I need to do when I'm on a bus is close my eyes and take deep breaths and stay hydrated. And so I actually already had enough information.
1: That's fascinating because that's exactly what Dumbledore is doing to Fudge. Fudge complains that he's not getting enough information from Dumbledore. And, is you know, Scrimgeour is now writing to Dumbledore to ask for more information. But Dumbledore is doing exactly what you just said, which is like, guys, Voldemort is back. You need to keep people safe. That is your job. I'm not going to tell you about Horcruxes. I'm not going to tell you about my theory because A, I don't know enough. And B, I do not trust you to execute this plan. I need a special ops team of Um, (laughs) 16-year-olds. But but I think that's exactly what's happening. It's like you know enough that more information and this type of information is not going to serve you. I never thought about that.
2: So something else that I was wondering in terms of helplessness is – I think that we see a real dichotomy between Fudge and the other prime minister. Mm. The other prime minister seems to know that he is helpless, whereas Fudge just keeps doing things regardless of whether or not they are the right thing. (laughs) He is literally twirling his bowler hat like he is just going to keep spinning plates to keep spinning plates. I'll put Umbridge in a school. I'll do a Triwizard tournament. Like, I'm going to keep distracting. I'm going to keep, right? Like, it's almost like he's running a circus in order to feel like he's not helpless Mm. and like he is doing something.
1: Yeah,
2: He does not feel helpless, but he is not being helpful.
1: Yes. Yeah, and when we look back at Fudge, I hadn't thought about it this way. It is constantly creating, you know, big events, especially show-stopping events. You know, we've got the Quidditch World Cup, of course, which is hosted, apparently, by Britain this year. And then we have the Triwizard Tournament.
2: And he's just willing to throw darts wherever, right? He's like, I love Harry Potter. I hate Harry Potter. Now this person should be in charge. Now this person, right? Like, he's just willing to try anything to throw things at the wall and see what sticks.
1: Well, and that's such a sign of when you don't have your center, you know, when, when you feel in a hundred different directions when you are not confident in your own decision making when you don't feel grounded i mean i recognize that when you're just kind of scurrying in eight different directions and usually at least for me i don't even notice that it's happened until after it's happened and so i can imagine you know fudge at the end of book seven being like guys i am so sorry
2: (laughs) i was just trying things i
1: was doing the best i could yeah you know
2: and Loving Harry Potter wasn't working, and so I tried, you know, authoritative dictatorship. Whoops. (laughs) I, like, shouldn't have.
1: Is there a card for that? Because I may need it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. to authoritarian dictatorship. Planning for your
3: next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen. Premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on.
2: Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the
1: Redfin app to get started. Well, this is an interesting point to pick up on because as we've said, the context in which this book happens is so rapidly changed. You know, we 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 see that within the ministry, we've got a, a new leader in Rufus Scrimgeour who's this former aura, you know, who spent most of his life fighting dark wizards and became head of the aura office. So he's cut, he's grim. He's not spending time building a relationship with the prime minister. He's like, that is not a priority. What matters is this war? And that's what I'm going to do. And so I think we are capturing that moment where in a war, democracy does change. You know, we start to have uh, rules about what can be printed publicly, about where you can move, what you can say even, right? Loose lips sink ships is the kind of famous Second World War saying. So I do think that we see that in this book, that the kind of norms of democracy are changing.
2: Well, I feel that in my life, just like on a daily level, right? I like do not control the bodies of children, right? I like to let them run around and do whatever. But when we're crossing a busy street, right. they are to be on one side of me and hold my hand. Right? It's like as soon as you're in a dangerous situation, there needs to be some authority and some rules. And then once we cross the street, go run. Right. Like go scrape your knee, get banged up. You're a kid. You're fine. So I think that it's a completely human feeling of like danger. I must have safety. And You know, I think it's something that we talk about, like on a political theory level, that liberty can't exist without safety, right? If you are scared all the time, then you're not free. And I would always err on the side of liberty over the authoritative safety. But it is actually a razor's edge of like you absolutely cannot feel free if you are scared all the time.
1: Yeah. And the helplessness, frankly, that can live in both or certainly when you're caught between the two that definitely shows up in this book and and in our own lives. So Vanessa, there's this moment in the text, which I don't fully know how it links with helplessness, but I think there's really something there. We hear from the storytelling about when Fudge and the Prime Minister first met, that really all the announcements of the magical world kind of imposing in the Prime Minister's office come through this portrait. And there's something that moves on the portrait. And Past Fudge's first visit, the prime minister was like, what on earth was that? I never want to engage with it again. This portrait had something to do with it. Let's get rid of the portrait. And, you know, he has people come in, first a carpenter, and then, like, maybe the chancellor of the exchequer has a go. But, like, no one can move this portrait. And on a first-level reading, you could say, like, okay, they're all helpless. They can't move it. But what else is hidden within this metaphor that we might find?
2: I mean, I think often what makes us feel helpless is, like, the immovable thing within ourselves, right?
1: Uh so, classic.
2: So what made you feel so helpless with Sean was obviously that Sean was in a difficult position, but it was also that you're a planner, right? Yeah. And it was like, but there's always a next thing to do. Right. And it's like, well, actually, control of our lives is an illusion, A meteor could come and hit us right now. You know, you could win the lottery. I don't know. Any number of things could happen. Like he just needs to let go. Right. And I think that the thing to do is maybe to actually like he should decorate the portrait and like put up Christmas lights around it and like make (laughs) it his favorite portrait. Yes. Because it's the things that you can't control that you're like, well, I might as well make it pretty
1: here it is I'm really thinking of um, that great I think it's from John Cabot zinn that phrase of wherever you go there you are you know and I'm so guilty of like oh when this happens I'll be so different and I'll go to that place and I'll totally reinvent myself and it's like nah, eh, like you're still you you yeah. know maybe with a different haircut which is great Um, but it's it's still fundamentally that you and so I love that image of decorating the portrait or hanging up Christmas lights because it's a way of embracing what can't be moved you know that that is intrinsically part of who we are and it's not that the portrait itself is bad like 99 percent of the time the portrait doesn't move right there's nothing scary about it it's just in those tiny little moments when you know the wizarding world does impose itself on the prime minister that that it's something to be frightened of but there's no need to be afraid of it all the time do you know what i mean like it's a way of like not feeling the fear until there's an actual moment where like yeah okay it's legit to be afraid
2: and I, so I think I actually want to move a step further from, like, decorating the portrait. Like, talk to the portrait.
1: Yes. Right?
2: Like, Dumbledore has an advisory relationship with his portraits. He could start trying to summon fudge when he needs a partner to think through things. Okay, right? maybe
1: not fudge, but surely there's someone else in the ministry.
2: <laughs> right. But <laughs> I just—I think that when we feel helpless, sometimes it is because we are really helpless. And I think that other times— we can try to love that helplessness, right? Yeah. And even you, right? The reason you felt so helpless is because you love Sean so much and yeah. it was so hard for you to watch him suffer. And so I think that, you know me, I don't like being rosy about things, but I do wonder if when we feel helpless, we're like, okay, well, what what is the thing that I can love here?
1: Yeah. And especially what I love about talking to the portrait is is that question of who can I share this with, right? Like, How can I make sure that even when there's pain, I try not to be isolated? I think that's really the big thing that I took away because one of the gifts, and this is always, you know, difficult to say, but one of the things that really came out for both of us from that experience was how many more people we know in our life have struggled with mental ill health of all sorts of different things. And like, you know, thank God that we're all able to talk about it together because it does lessen at least the isolation. It's so easy to be like, oh, this campaign is about awareness. But like what that really is about is that there are relationships where you can have a really hard conversation about something that becomes less hard because you share it. I wish for the prime minister that he had that with this portrait. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I mean, someone who's literally always there for you.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Or what about like former prime ministers? He can be like, yo, so you never guess what happened. I know we're from different parties and that we hate each other. But you know what I'm saying when I say lime green bowler hat.
2: (laughs) It's. It is so strange to me that he doesn't go and talk to other prime ministers about yeah. this. I was like, are their memories oh, maybe on this? I mean, fudge is like, would you tell anyone? Right. But if they're not obliterated, what a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. Like, what shame is there in sharing a secret that you know somebody else has the same secret? Yeah. So one more point that I want to make is that I'm just thinking as we're having this conversation, the part of me does respect fudge for just throwing everything at the wall. Mm. I think like if I had a sick kid, I would just start throwing things at the wall and seeing what's stuck. Right. Yeah. It's like you just go to every appointment to every doctor and you're like, even though it seems so it's in the ear, we're going to the foot doctor because you never know. Right. And like. I think that sometimes that is a noble stance towards the world that's just like, I am not giving up. Right. And especially, again, like at times of crisis like we are in as a country right now, I think it's like I'm going to like rattle the cages until these children are let out. But then I also think Luna has shown us another way, and Mm. I don't know if the other prime minister embodies this also, but Luna not resisting when the inquisitorial squad was like basically had her in a chokehold and she actually was the least injured because she wasn't resisting. I think taking a moment... And sitting back and asking questions can be a real opportunity, too. Because Fudge, we never see Fudge acknowledge some grief about the fact that they were wrong about Sirius. We never see him, you know, acknowledge, oh, we really messed up with the Dementors. We never see him processing anything. Mm. And I think that if we don't stop and have our Luna moments and are constantly Fudge and throwing things at the wall when we feel helpless, we're not learning from oh, I probably shouldn't be taking him to the podiatrist. I should be, you know, focusing on X, Y, or Z. We should be stopping to notice at least a little bit.
1: Or, or sometimes just like being present with the kid. I mean, to use that to use that example, I think that's what Luna's gift is to, to Harry and to so many of us when we read her. Wow, I'd never seen these insights in this chapter until we've read it through this theme. I'm really glad that we did.
2: That we have this whole podcast?
1: Oh, it turns out. I'm glad we're back for season six. This is fun. So Vanessa, for the next few weeks, we are going to continue with the practice of marginalia. Now, listeners will remember we had the wonderful Broderick Greer on as a guest a little while ago, and Broderick told us about the textual practice of marginalia that he really learned from his grandmother, an African-American woman who made all of these fascinating and beautiful annotations to her Bible. And when he read them years later, it brought alive a conversation that really she was having with herself, with the tradition, with these words on the page. And so he shared with us this, this practice that we have interpreted so that I will look at your text and you will look at mine and we'll notice what each of us has underlined or scribbled in or added to the text and, and try to make meaning and gain new insights from that. So let's just take a quick moment to look at each other's text and see what we find.
2: Ooh, Interesting. So you underlined the word outstretched. Mm. It's when Fudge enters the Prime Minister's office and it's ah Prime Minister said Cornelius Fudge striding forward with his hand outstretched. Good to see you again. And what you wrote is knows how to act. Mm. And what's so interesting is he knows how to act. But he, like, doesn't know how to behave. He doesn't know how to problem solve. He doesn't know how to hold on to his job, right? Like, he only knows how to be polite. I am I guess I'm curious as to what you meant by knows how to act.
1: Well, I think more than just knows how to be polite, he knows how to be political. You know, he knows how to make a good impression. And he's constantly, we've seen throughout the books, able to maneuver between all of these different power players. Even if he's not actually having an impact, at least he has that image And so what struck me is that, you know, for the prime minister, every time fudge arrives, it's bad news, right? Like it's a bad omen. But he is able to present somehow that it's like, oh, good to see you. You know, I was just thinking about the ways in which shaking someone's hand, walking in confidently, looking them in the eye. These are all things that we certainly expect from our political leaders, but that signal strength and that you know, don't actually mean anything about the content. And so I I guess I Mm. thought this was an interesting moment where we see this duplicity, or perhaps that's being too harsh on Fudge. We're seeing the inadequacy of just having the kind of the skill set of the appearance of leadership, but maybe not the actual, you know, content of it.
2: But I actually think it is duplicitous because Mm. I think you should walk into a room being like, I am so sorry that we are meeting again under these circumstances, right?
1: Well, and especially it being like, I'm so sorry that our world is killing your people. I mean, that's a little too harsh of a distinction. But like, I want you to know, like, I'm so sorry I read about what's happened. It's not your fault. Yeah, you're right. He could have come in with a little white flag or at least a box of chocolates.
2: (laughs) I mean, the sympathy I will extend to Fudge is that I've caught myself in moments. I mean, even at a funeral, I'll say to someone, good to see you. Right. And you're like, I am happy to lay my eyes on you, but I am not glad for this. Context,
1: this moment. Exactly.
2: Or even just the ways that we go into like autopilot. The one that always gets me is like if I'm getting a coffee at the airport and the barista says, have a good flight and I say, you too. (laughs) And I'm like, no. You're not flying. You're at work. And so part of me feels for Fudge that he's just like on autopilot. But I just want to invite him to get out of autopilot. Like this is time to be paying attention and to be walking into a room not saying good to see you, but saying like, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you and I need to have a very serious conversation. And actually, we need to be putting our heads together to the best of our
1: abilities. Yeah. I think about, you know, that idea that clarity is kindness You know, this is not a relationship that's actually a friendship. And there are some, I think especially in work environments, that sometimes it's hard to say the thing that's clear and true, but ultimately it's the kind thing to do. And, uh, you know, that's what Scrimjaw is doing. You know, he's not someone you want to have over for tea, but at least you know he's going to say what he means.
2: I mean, I guess this won't come as a surprise to anybody, but I care much less about being likable.
1: Well, and I think you care less about that than I do.
2: Oh, I just, like, I think I care less than the average
1: person. Uh, no, but I care much more about that. Like, that's why I underlined this. Like, I mean, we've talked about Slytherins in the previous episode. And I think, in fact, I'm reminded of myself when I look at Fudge sometimes because I know, I know that I can do what he's doing right there. And I want to remind myself that it's not the right thing to do. I think that's why I underlined it.
2: Yeah, and and I do think that there's a time and a place for it, right? Like going back to our oncology metaphor that's been with us this whole episode, you don't want the doctor to walk in right. and be like, death sentence.
1: Which can I take out one of your marginalia moments, which is um the Prime Minister is learning about what's happened and Fudge says, Oh, but blacks by the by now and your comment is, but he's dead. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You talk first.
1: Well, it's just I feel like it captures exactly this thing where you're just like, you know, say say the truth. Like, this is not even sugarcoating. This is actually offensive. You know, Black's by the by now. It, it's suggesting, oh, Black's not an issue, which fair enough. But like Black has literally died. And Fudge is responsible, overwhelmingly responsible.
2: And it turns out that he was wrong about Black. Exactly. So it's like. It's not just that he's not an issue anymore because he's dead. It's that he was actually never an issue in the first place. And whoops, we messed up. And it's just, again, like Fudge just like constantly moving, constantly moving forward and like not looking back ever Which caused him to make the same mistakes again and again, right? Where, like, you just believe whatever it is that you want to believe. The easiest story to sell to the papers. Black is a bad guy. Harry Potter is lying, right? And, like, you're just going to keep messing up. And people are going to die. Like, there is actual risk here. And I do like truth-telling.
1: Yeah, I think it's important.
2: Oh, this is really interesting. I found another interesting point from your margin notes here. You underlined that Dumbledore won't explain properly. And then you wrote, not for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I know this is something we've talked about before, but I am am curious about the things that Dumbledore decides to tell Harry. You know, we talked about how, you know, Snape and Draco conspire to kill Dumbledore in this book. But Dumbledore is on a suicide mission, right? Like Mm. he knows he's dying Mm. at the very beginning of the book. He is sacrificing himself again and again, knowing that he's already dying. And so it's so interesting what he decides to tell Harry and what he doesn't and why he doesn't tell Harry explicitly, go after the Horcruxes, not after the Hallows, right? Like that he doesn't take that opportunity to tell Harry things explicitly is just really unclear to me. And what it is that we decide to say and not say to each other in general is really unclear to me, right? It's like, how many times have I thought how beautiful my mom is and, like, not told her? And it's like, why don't we say those things? I literally don't know why. My brain does not say those things, but it doesn't. And so I'm just, I'm even curious to how much control Dumbledore has over what he decides to tell and not tell. Oh. Because as we sort of discovered at the end of book five, like, part of why he tells and doesn't tell is because he loves Harry. And so I wonder if before he died, he had the intention of telling Harry and then he sort of like died two days sooner than he thought he was going to and like actually wanted to.
1: That's so interesting because I definitely fall into the narrative that Dumbledore is all knowing and that this is all strategy and he's planned it. And even that feeling of like, I love Harry and I want to protect him hasn't overwhelmed that kind of strategic primacy that i think of in
2: uh, really because at the end of book five he tells us right i know he's like i thought about telling you in your second year and then i was like what's one more year and then i thought about telling you in your third and you were so cute
1: yeah and i get that but that kind of also feels like explaining away something i i I don't know but i in in Mm. this moment i am really resonating with what you're saying in that we can't expect dumbledore to magically be better than us when it comes to this. Certainly he's better at turning chairs into, you know, elephants. But, you know, he's just as human as we are when it comes to these kind of questions of like, when do I tell someone there's a wonderful song I was listening to in the car this morning by uh, one of my favorite musicians, Jens Lekman, And it's it's really a song about like toxic masculinity because it's about him being on a train with his best friend. And the chorus is like, how, how can I tell him that I love him? I don't know. It's so evocative. You know, he says like, yeah, we can talk about anything as long as it's about nothing, you know, just like. And, yeah. and I think that's so true in our friendships and our family relationships that it's so easy to just assume that we'll always be here. We'll always be in this place and nothing nothing will come between us. And yet turns out Snape is going to be there.
2: (laughs) Casper, I love you.
1: I love you too, Vanessa.
2: Just in case I die.
1: Yeah. But hopefully not. So if you're listening along and you want to try out Marginalia, it's super fun if you have a friend who's made notes in their copy of the books or even in a group. Um, but you can also go back and look at your old notations. Like I go back sometimes to previous books, and I'm totally surprised by what I was writing down because, of course, it's a conversation with the moment that you were in then. So I hope you enjoy trying this at home.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
1: we're back with voicemails, and this week we're hearing from Mariana.
0: Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. This is Mariana from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm just listening through Book Five and thinking about a lot of these conversations about Snape and his past, and what those things, um, how those things affect the way that he interacts with everyone around him, and. I just, as somebody who's been a victim of abuse in a bunch of different ways, I really hate Snape. I think that there's this expectation that we're supposed to forgive him for what he's been through, and I find that really difficult to do. But at the same time, I love Draco Malfoy, and I find that really hard to reconcile. Like, how am I able to forgive Draco, but I'm unable to forgive Snape? I think part of it is because Snape is an adult. Maybe I just assume that as a grown-up that he should have his stuff together and not treat people the way that he does. And, you know, Draco is a child and a product of the way that he was raised and how that affects the way that he interacts with people. But why do we forgive some people and we don't forgive others? For similar situations that they are in, like, why do we not forgive Snape, but we do forgive Draco, or vice versa, people who forgive Snape but don't forgive Draco. I don't have an answer to this. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks.
2: Mariana, gosh, do I empathize with this issue. I will say that I think that the process of doing this podcast has made me wonder if I am now able to forgive just about anyone. I think that I have really practiced that, or at least I will say that I think it has expanded the possibility of who I am capable of forgiving, but it has not expanded the possibility of who it is that I want to reconcile with or who I want to have in my life. But the reason that it's easy to forgive some people, not others, is because either we like them or because of past trauma, right? It's There are just certain people who we want to forgive, and there are other people who we don't. And what is so interesting to me about that is that who deserves our forgiveness does not always equal who we want to forgive. Who is healthier for us to forgive does not always equal who we want to forgive. I think that this is a complicated ecosystem. And to me, the more important distinction is not who we forgive, but who we decide to reconcile with and have back in our life. And I think that... I'm stealing actually from Matt Potts, but, you know, he defines forgiveness as no longer wishing harm upon a person. And reconciliation is wanting to restore the relationship and having that person back in your life. And I'm much more willing to forgive than I am to reconcile.
1: That's such a helpful distinction. And I think, Marianne, I, I really resonate with the difference that you write, right? That one's a child, one's an adult. And I think I also Resonate with what you're saying, Vanessa, that sometimes there's no logical reason about why we feel like we we might be able to forgive one person and not the other. You know, one of the things I'm learning about forgiveness and I'm learning it the hard way is that it's not a one-time event. There might be a moment when you're able to say for the first time to yourself or to someone else that you want to forgive a third party, but it's not like you you say it once and then it's done right like that that process can last for a long time if you even ever fully get there and so i'm starting to try and embody that idea of intending to work towards forgiveness you know that there's really like so many stages of this and there's also different times right perhaps down the line is going to be a moment when i might be able to forgive someone and it's not right now and that's I think that's fine. I always just try and remember that forgiveness is actually much more about yourself and releasing yourself from the the hate or the bitterness or the um, whatever the feeling is that's associated with it, as much as it is about releasing someone else. And it, in an ideal world, the process of forgiveness is about decoupling someone else's power over you, the way that they can make you feel if you see their name, if you see their picture. And that That is easier to do from a distance. And of course, Harry doesn't really have that luxury, right? The way in which he is at Hogwarts and encountering Snape and encountering Draco in such a constant way, it's nearly impossible, I think, for him to do. And he doesn't.
2: Often I find that I get stuck sort of halfway to forgiveness, Mm. which is I do not wish harm upon this person, but like, nor do I particularly wish them well.
1: Absolutely. And I think that is more than fine, especially when it can just be, I mean, really what we're looking for is peace of mind, right? Right. I don't want them to come into my head, right? Like it's very unlikely that I see these people on a day-to-day basis, but they can live in my head and that can sink me. And so I want when they do come into my head, I can be like, they're released, right? Just let that big ocean wave take them back out. And I don't need to think twice again about them or what happened between us. Yeah. Vanessa, who are you going to bless this week?
2: I would like to bless Amelia Bones, who we know was a brilliant witch, but her obituary says she was a middle-aged woman who lived alone. I know all obituaries are reductive, but this seems overly reductive to me. And I guess I just want to bless anyone out there who feels as though something about them is labeling them in an overly reductive way, whether that is You know, a diagnosis or the fact that, you know, your mother just passed away or I think that you can very quickly become the girl who got dumped publicly, the guy who just came out of the closet, that like we can all just be reduced to a single story. And Amelia Bones was a lot more than a middle aged woman who lived alone. And you are more than any single story that the world can sometimes reduce you to. Although I don't mind when people call me the Harry Potter girl. I'm like, sure, yeah. (laughs) What about you, Casper?
1: I'd like to bless Rufus Scrimgeour, the incoming minister of magic. He's described as an old lion. That was just so evocative for me to think about. Here's someone who's lived through war before and has lost a lot of the niceties, as we've talked about. But I just think about how he and so many other people probably had hoped and expected never to live through it again. And so my blessing is for Rufus and for anyone who is reliving something that they thought they'd never have to face again, because I think there is a, an extra terror to that um, because we no longer can tell ourselves that this will only have to be once, which makes it all the more scary sometimes. So for Rufus and, and anyone who needs a blessing today, this is for you.
2: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 2, Spinner's End, through the theme of prudence. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode, or come and join the 1,200-plus people supporting us on Patreon.
1: Please leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you very soon at one of our live shows. We're in New York City on September 9th, Cambridge Mass on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. And you can also join our fabulous Virginia Woolf pilgrimage by going to Reading. And walking with.com. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Arianna Middleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Ursin. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Ball, and we are part of Night vale Presents.
2: Special thanks this week to Mariana Hackney for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Sal.
1: Certainly he's better at turning chairs into, you know, elephants, but. Um,
2: not better than me at that. That <laughs> happens to be the one spell I'm really good at.
1: <laughs> Elephantis Cherus maximus. Um, but it has to be maximus, um, <laughs> yeah. which is, I just said it to save your chair from turning into an elephant.
3: Thank you.